Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 2.1, forming and filling. Alrighty, we're on to part two, creation. In the first four podcasts, we uh, we were exploring the theme of chaos, and we took our cues there from references to darkness and waters in the first two verses of the Bible. Well, believe it or not, we're still not done with those two verses. Um, So we're just going to take another quick look, paying attention this time to the description of the world that's given there. So this is Genesis 1 and 2 again. Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 again. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. The earth was a formless void. Weird, huh? The Hebrew words there are tohu vabohu, um, which mean formless and void or unformed and unfilled. And the reason I say it's weird is that a world without form and without content doesn't exist, right? If you've got no shape and no content, then what's there to speak of? If I told you that at the moment I'm holding this statue made of solid gold, And then I added that at the moment, it's formless and empty. It'd be fair for you to say, ah, don't think that you do have a golden statue there, Paul. You're dreaming. If your golden statue is unformed and unfilled, then I'm going to take a punt and say that it probably doesn't exist. But in Genesis, rather than say before the world was made, the writer says, in the beginning, the earth was unformed and unfilled. So what's going on here? Well, as we've already noticed with the chaos keywords, darkness and waters, the writer is introducing major themes for the chapter. Now, whether you're writing a poem or a letter, a story, list of laws or whatever, it's pretty normal to have some introductory words that prepare your listeners by setting a framework for the topic that you're addressing. And that's exactly what the first two verses of Genesis do. The writer describes the world this way, to establish the reader's expectations for what will follow. Because the account that follows will pick up on these exact ideas of forming and filling. In other words, these two Hebrew words, tohu and bohu, they serve as a kind of preface or an introduction for the rest of Genesis 1. They set the scene by saying the world was unformed and unfilled, but in the verses that follow, that is exactly what the author or the poet is going to describe the forming and filling actions of God. So let's take a look. Uh, And if you've got the PDF again, just go to the table and fill it out as we go. If you're driving, riding a bike or whatever, just keep your eyes on the road and let me talk you through it. Okay, so the table has two columns, if you can imagine it. On the left, forming, and on the right, you guessed it, filling. The left column is made up of days one, two, and three. The right column, days four, five, and six. Now, don't picture the table. Watch the road, the roundabout coming up. As I read these first three days, verses three to 13, ask yourself what God is forming. Okay, this is verses three uh, to 13. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day. So there we have light and dark separated from each other. And that is a forming activity. Next bit from verse six. And God said, let there be a dome 
in the midst of the waters and let it separate waters from waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So here we have sky and sea. They're being separated from each other. And that's another forming activity. And finally, from verse 9, And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees of every kind that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. And so dry land is formed with plants on it. And this is the third and final forming activity. All right, so we're halfway there. The earth is no longer tohu. It has now been formed. Now, before we read about the next three days, I, I want you to actually have a guess at what comes next. I often do this in class and students get it right every time. So let's imagine that you are writing an orderly account of creation and forming has been accounted for already on days one to three, but now you are being asked to fill the things that have been formed. So on day one, God separated light and dark. On day four, you want to fill those light and dark spaces. What would you fill them with? Did you say sun, moon and stars? Correct! Sun, moon, and stars fill the light and dark spaces. Uh, for day five, if you had filled, uh, sorry, if you had formed the sky and the sea on day two, and now you want to fill them, what would you fill them with? Did you just say birds in the sky and fish in the sea? Great idea. And God had the same idea. Yes. So, or I should say the author had the same idea. And finally, to complete our very orderly table, we need to fill in on day six what was formed on day three. So how do we fill the dry land? If you're thinking animals and humans, so am I. So the pattern's interesting, isn't it? But it's more than just interesting. It's significant. How? How is this significant? Well, the way Genesis 1 is written is very significant because it is not structured like history. Now, I'll give you a second in case you've fallen off your seat or had a car crash or pulled your headphones out and tossed your phone. Let me say that again. The way that Genesis 1 is written is significant because it is not structured like an historical account. Now, we've already read this through as liturgy in 1.3, World Making Words, and we looked at when this account might have been written. But let me just give this to you straight. Genesis 1 reads as poetry. It has an obvious structure. It begins by saying the earth is unformed and unfilled, and then it goes on to describe how God forms and fills the world. It contains metaphors, darkness and waters, two primary metaphors for chaos in ancient Israelite literature, and here they are. It contains repetition, and God said, let there be, and God said, let there be, and God said, let there be, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the first day, there was evening and morning the second day, and so on, right? It contains all these elements, and they're elements 
of poetry, structure, metaphors, repetition. It's probably poetry. It's not even that complicated. But because I know from experience that a lot of people struggle to let go of a certain way of reading Genesis 1, I am going to spend two more podcasts on this. But let's begin just by asking, what problems arise if I try to read Genesis 1 as history or as science? Here are some of the problems. First of all, if God made everything, I've mentioned this earlier, I think, if God made everything, why does Genesis 1 verse 2 speak of waters? Right? They're already there. God didn't make them. They're just there. Secondly, if God speaks of light on day one, let there be light, but he doesn't talk about the sun till day four, if the sun is the only sort of light source of light in our universe, which science says it is, then how can we have light three days before the sun? It doesn't make sense historically or scientifically. Related to that, actually, how can anyone even measure days one to three if you haven't got the sun? And third, to draw on another scientific discovery, how is it possible to have plants on day three without the sun? You studied photosynthesis, right, back in high school? These plants are not going to survive without some sort of light source. Fourth, if we take seriously the language that's being used, the moon in verse 14 is described as a light. So if we want to be technical, verse 16 says, God made the two great lights. But we know that the moon is not a light. It only reflects the sun's light. So that detail doesn't appear to be scientifically correct either. But perhaps the real clincher is this fifth observation. Genesis has two creation accounts, and they are different. The first account is poetry, from 1 verse 1 to 2 verse 3, and the second begins in 2 verse 4, and it reads as a narrative. So the difficulty here is that the first account, the poetic one, has things happening in a different order than the second narrative account. You can look at these yourself uh, in greater detail or just pick up a commentary. I'm just trying to point it out in a basic form. But in Genesis 1, plants and vegetation, for instance, are created on day 3 and humans on day 6. If we go to Genesis 2, well, we ha- have a listen to these uh, first couple of verses. This is from Genesis 2 verse 4. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So just to be really explicit, the plants are created before the man in Genesis 1, but in Genesis 2, the man is made first, and that's made very clear because he needs to be the one who's going to take care of the plants in the garden. So what is going on here? Do we play these two counts off against each other and work out which one of them must be right and which one must be wrong? No, no, that's not the point. The point is simply that these are different kinds of literature. They're different readings or different interpretations of the same events. And let me be clear about this. I'm not trying to trick you and I'm not trying to undermine your faith in the Bible. I'm just asking questions. 
And my, my, the, the thing that I'm trying to get at here is that we read better when we ask questions and when we avoid making assumptions. So I'm only trying to point out that the first chapter of Genesis doesn't make sense as history or science, so don't read it that way. Right? If the first chapter of Genesis doesn't make sense as history or science, don't read it that way. Does that mean that I don't believe what the Bible says? Of course not. The, the reason I don't believe the world was made in six days is not because I'm trying to be clever or progressive or radical in my thinking. It's because I don't think that's what the text says. It's certainly not what the text means. As I understand it, the six days of creation in Genesis 1 are not actual days. They're, they're the writer's way of giving this account a clear literary structure. So again, just to be really clear, does that mean that I don't believe what the Bible says? Of course not. Actually, I would argue, it means that I take the Bible more seriously than some people. It means I want to determine what the writer was trying to accomplish before I force my own presuppositions on it. Do you see what I mean? It's actually more responsible to ask these questions, not less. Have you ever jumped to a conclusion too soon? Have you ever heard someone uh, say something and then you've reacted or you've spoken a word of judgment or been a bit harsh and then sort of gotten yourself all riled up and then the person you're talking to gets irritated and suddenly you're in a full-blown argument? Or perhaps they're gracious and they just encourage you to you know, check your facts before you get too excited. Have you ever been in that kind of situation where after you've blown your top over something, you've realised that actually you should have asked some questions first? See, I see this pattern all the time with Genesis 1. People have all kinds of convictions about what the Bible says and doesn't say about creation. But you know what we often just need to do? We just need to take a look at the text, take a closer look, read it intelligently. Don't just grab it verses or words that support what you already think. Consider what it actually might be saying before you get too offended by my questions or comments, if they're contrary to what you already believe. Now, the funny thing is, we know this is true about literature. We know that you're not gonna find a discussion about the meaning of life at the bottom of a speeding fine, right? We don't look for the meaning of life on a speeding fine. If a journalist and a poet attend a wedding and each one writes up accounts of what they've witnessed, we wouldn't expect them to say the same thing. We wouldn't even expect them to cover the same details or even possibly to list events in the same order because a journalist and a poet use different literary forms. They have different agendas. We know that the newspaper article and the poem that come out of that will both communicate truth in their own ways. And you know what? That's okay. It's actually great. We get a much richer sense of what happened at this hypothetical wedding if we read what the poet and the journalist wrote down. One of the best illustrations I've, I've come across of this is Jan Martel's award-winning novel, Life of Pi. It won the Booker Prize in 2002 and sold, it's, it's sold, I think, over 10 million copies. It was made into a film in 2012, directed by Ang Lee. I wrote a brief reflection on it in my book on Job, and let me just read you a paragraph from there. I recently saw the film Life of Pi, which hit home to me on this very point. After the sinking of a cargo ship, Piscine Molitor Patel, 
known simply as Pi, endures 227 days stranded at sea. Upon his recovery from the ordeal, he is asked to give an account of what happened. He offers two versions of the story, one of them a fantastical tale involving various animals, the other a brief statement of the bare and gruesome facts. He's compelled to offer the second account because the response to the first is, Mr. Patel, we don't believe your story. So after giving the second explanation, Pi is given permission to leave. But before he does, he turns a question back upon his investigators and implicitly upon us as the readers. Pi says, which is the better story? The story with the animals or the story without animals? Now, I think much of the book or the film's staying power hangs on that question. Though actually making a choice between the two stories misses the point entirely. Of course, in Pi's judgment, the first version of the story, the one with the animals, is the better one. And it's the longer one. And it undoubtedly, it relates some deeper truths about Pi's experience, even if it is an imaginative interpretation of his harrowing ordeal. But for readers or viewers, the two accounts have to be held in tension with one another, right? The first contains Pi's reflections on the significance of the events, whereas the second account is just a raw collection of facts, like a journalistic data entry, not much of a story. On its own, it, it would make for a dull book or film. But although the two stories are contradictory in one sense, we can't understand either one properly unless we hear them both. See, not only are both stories true in different ways, one is an historical record and the other is a construal of Pi's spiritual and emotional journey, but the richness of Pi's experience is best understood when you listen to both voices. That's uh, pages 46 and 7 of my book, Job's Way Through Pain. You see, the whole point that Martel makes so well in this book is that truth is so much bigger than one literary form can possibly communicate. Truth, capital T, can't be contained in a single form. And in much the same way, Genesis 1 and 2, they give us two accounts of creation. One is poetic or liturgical, and the other is narrative. But when you put them together, it communicates something more of what God was doing when he created this world for us to live in. So why does the account work in this way? Well, I think because Genesis 1 is a poetic and literary account of creation. It's not a scientific one. And secondly, it's, it's really trying to raise the issue or address the issue that God brings life through order. And so the whole account talks about moving from chaos to creation by bringing order. Now, in some ways, that sounds really simple, and we are going to explore this further in another two podcasts, because never, many of us have never revisited the way that we were taught to read these texts as kids in Sunday school, and we really need to. We grow up with one understanding of certain texts, but it's a bit strange that we hold on to those until the grave. Surely with literature this sophisticated and complex and beautiful, we should revisit it and rethink how we read it. So in 2.2, in the next podcast, we'll ask what is the problem exactly uh, with Genesis 1 as we've read it. And in 2.3, we'll look at a solution to this and other texts that cause us problems.
But the question that I'd like you to think about as we close off with this one is this. How does Genesis 1 communicate truth? How does Genesis 1 communicate truth? See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.